Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. Creative visionary is the description that comes to mind when I think about this week's guest. Simon Locke is the entrepreneur who put Australian fashion on the map when he founded Mercedes Australian Fashion Week. He was the champion of Australian fashion designers well before it was fashionable and he showed the world that sophisticated fashion could come out of Australia. The success of this event led to Simon holding senior management positions in a number of other international fashion weeks that sprung up following the Australian success. Singapore, Hong Kong, Dubai, Pakistan, India, and the long-established New York Fashion Week. When the GFC, the global financial crisis, hit in 2008 and Australia's Fashion Week experienced a dramatic decline in attendance of the international retail buyers, Simon embraced new technology to deliver Fashion Week digitally. This included the world's first live stream fashion show, the first website, can you believe, for a Fashion Week, and early adoption of bloggers and social media channels. The impact of the digital revolution and other economic factors disrupted the traditional business channels and the Fashion Week schedules greatly. Ahead of the curve once again, Simon, along with his wife, Kirsten, created Ord. That's O-R-D-R-E. It's an online platform to facilitate the management of luxury wholesale networks globally through the presentation of the designer's seasonal collections with the use of virtual showrooms. Simon developed this 360-degree data capture technology as the cornerstone of the platform. They knocked on doors for four years, slowly building the platform and clientele. And then once COVID hit in 2020, the phone hasn't stopped ringing. Pretty well all the major luxury designers have come on board. Louis Vuitton, Javonchi, Chloe, Lueve, Balmain, Gucci, Stella McCartney, Marc Jacobs, and many more. Simon says the company's on track to generate revenues of around 13 million Aussie dollars annually and contribute to generating hundreds of millions of dollars of wholesale orders for its clients. People who can think outside the box and follow through in their actions are the ones who really get my admiration. Please welcome to the blank canvas, Simon Locke. Good morning. Hey, Lee. How you doing? Yeah, good. <laughs> Thanks for coming to my place in Pleasure. Sydney. Pleasure. Fantastic. Any excuse. I love Bondi. It's almost my second home these days. Fantastic. I was thinking as I was preparing for this that we've crossed paths a few times over the years. We have. Never, you know, really worked on the same project together for a period of time. But, um, you know, I've always known you as a powerhouse and the guy behind Australian Fashion Week. But... Looking at what you've done over the last few years, it's kind of mind-boggling how you've pivoted and run with the digital revolution and I guess been ahead of the curve with this whole virtual reality that we're looking at now. Yeah, well, thanks. It's, uh, it's been a, a really uh, interesting journey. I, I don't know, sometimes I feel like I've been hit by a steamroller rather than being a powerhouse myself. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's... Uh, you know, journeys through life are, are incredible things and uh, why I, I always have a, a master plan in, in, in my own mind, but it's, uh, it's interesting where you end up in life. And uh, yeah, right now I feel uh, actually pretty blessed to be, well, one, back in Australia at this particular point in time, and two, just seeing the energy and acceleration that people around the world are getting from some of the innovations we're developing. It's, it's pretty amazing. It is. I want to talk a little more later about how you got started, what you did out of school and all of that. But sure. just while we're, you know, talking now, tell me more about your latest venture, Order. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. yeah. It's um it's French for the order of things. So Audrey, Order, um, Ord. And it's one of the nice things about it because it doesn't matter where you are in the world, you can have a different way of, of saying it. So we sort of think it's quite cool. But uh, yeah, Ord.com, it's uh, it's basically the world's first virtual showroom platform for luxury fashion designers. And uh, it really came out, of, I guess, uh, my passion of working with, uh, with designers around the world. 
And also, too, a feeling that the fashion industry couldn't keep doing business the way it was. It was killing itself and also killing the planet. And we really needed to come up with more sustainable ways of, of doing the business of fashion. And a couple of things sort of happened. When I was running Australian Fashion Week and we still owned the business, we were hit by the global financial crisis. And uh, we'd worked really hard for 10 or 15 years to get this event on the International Fashion Week circuit and to conjole buyers, to travel, you know, 26,000 kilometers to come to Sydney to see you know, amazing collections of designers that they'd never heard of, you know, and there was a, a lot of promotion and travel and, and conjoling to, to get people to come. And, and over the years, given the great quality and the reputation of the designers, we started to get people to come, which was really exciting. And I think, you know, our best year, we had like something like 374 international buyers come to our event. And when they came, they wrote something like about $50 million worth of orders. It was just like, we're really getting somewhere. And then the global financial crisis came and we saw the number of international buyers just fall off a cliff. It's like over the course of two years, we went from like 370 and it went bang to 50, bang to seven. And we're just like, hang on, what's happened here? And, you know, we're speaking to our contemporaries in London, Paris, and London, like, oh, yeah, we've seen a little bit of a downturn, but nothing like we'd experienced. And clearly, as much as I always have thought that Sydney's in the A-League along with Paris, London, Milan and New York, you know, clearly we're at the top of the B-League, you know. And and when it came to budget cuts during the global financial crisis, the fashion week everyone could afford not to go to was Sydney. And so all the buyers' travel budgets were slashed. They could perhaps still go to Paris and New York, but they couldn't go elsewhere. So we really saw a great effect. And this is just like, well, okay, well, if we can't get – people to come to us how can we take our content how can we take our creativity and how can we take it to them and of course by that stage you know this little thing called the internet had come along and you know we were seeing increasing bandwidths we'd already done a lot of interesting digital things we were the first people in the world i mean this just seems ludicrous now but we're the first people in the world to live stream a fashion show that was here in sydney um, and we were the first people to embrace social media. We we're the first people to have a website in the world, you know, Australian Fashion Week. I mean, it seems crazy, but we were. Wow. Um, and so we were always ahead, I guess, digitally. And so it's just like, okay, well, if no one can come here or people struggle to come here, then you know, how can we get all this content to them? You know, video streaming was starting to come on board. Pictures could be carried. Information is like, okay, well, you know, why don't we put our showrooms online? And so that was the genesis for the thought of Ord to create the world's first virtual showroom platform so that if buyers couldn't travel, they could still see these collections and they could still place their wholesale orders. And so, yeah, that was the thought. So um, I, I guess, exited from the physical world at that stage. You know, we were um, hunted and acquired by IMG. IMG. That's at, Fashion Week you're talking? Yeah. Fashion Week now, yep. yeah. So International Management Group, um, big organizations out of, out of the States, own huge big sporting licenses. They own the tennis, they own the golf, they own basketball, and they'd moved into fashion. Um, they'd started IMG Models, and also they had um, bought New York Fashion Week. And how they heard about us is, you know, we were a bit like, the mouse that roared. I actually put a bid in to buy New York Fashion Week, you know. And so they're like, who's this guy from the other side of the world that thinks he can buy New York Fashion Week? Um, and so it's like, oh, what do they do? And, so, and it turns out, you know, well, we were the guys in Asia Pacific because by that stage we were running Australian Fashion Week, Singapore Fashion Week, Hong Kong, doing some work in China and Japan. So IMG thought, okay, well, this is a company that we need to acquire. We've got Europe and North America. If we buy Simon's company, then we can have Asia Pacific. And so that's when we exited out of physical events. And, uh, you know, really that was when, you know, Fashion Week was, I guess, at the top of its game as a physical event. And that's when my focus and my company's focus started to go digital. I mean, the GFC sounds like it was a blessing in disguise, doesn't it? Because it kind of prompted you to develop digital technology and it wound up you being ahead of the curve, as I said earlier, yeah. isn't it? And then so once the COVID hit last year, you were the guy that was already sort of doing it with these high-res collections able to be viewed online. Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting. I mean, um, does innovation come out of 
solving problems? Does it come out of crisis? Does it come out of creativity? I think it's a combination of things. Certainly, I think the initial thought for where we are now came out of the global financial crisis. But interesting enough to your point, the acceleration of what we're doing and the acceptance of what we're doing has come out of COVID. I mean, we never built this technology to solve the industry's problems during a pandemic but it's purpose-built for it. I mean, in um, February last year, we had um, just got through the main season's collections in Milan, so Milan Fashion Week. So the circuit sort of goes, New York kicks off first and it goes London and it goes Milan and it ends up in Paris. And so um, we got through New York and London sort of just and then we got to Milan and all hell broke loose. So Northern Italy was obviously affected, one of the major hot spots for the pandemic or the epidemic as it was then. And then uh, we just saw all the major players close their physical showrooms. You know, Mr. Amani made the call the night before his show to go, okay, no audience can come. All I'm going to do is I'm going to have an empty theater. I'm just going to broadcast it. And he set the tone and basically everyone closed. So either people pulled their shows, closed their showrooms, and then we headed on to Paris Fashion Week and, you know, people were running for the hills by then and and it was greatly disrupted by the start of the lockdown in Paris. So we're in a situation Every physical fashion week in the world has been shuttered. Every physical showroom in the world has been shuttered. And yet those autumn winter collections still needed to be sold. And so, you know, we were already working with a number of the big brands, people like Gucci and Bottega, and we're able to get them through the season. And then every other designer, myself and Kirsten, who's my wife and co-founder, you know, we spent the last four years traveling the world, knocking on people's doors saying, oh, you know, you should have a look at this tech. It's great. You know, it's virtual showrooms. You know, the future's here now. And like in two or three weeks, I think, Everyone we'd seen over the last four is just like, Simon, you're right. Can we get one now? So I was just like, yeah, yeah, we're here to help. You know, let's make this happen. So That's incredible, mate. So tell me exactly the process. So they called. What do you do? I know you developed this 360-degree, you know, kind of photographic technology so you can zoom in with great detail into the, the clothing so they can see them. Just talk us through that because I know it's kind of groundbreaking and what the process was once they call you, how you digitize the images and get them online. Sure. Well, the platform itself, most people would be pretty familiar with. I mean, most people are familiar with e-commerce platforms for buying their, their own individual clothes. Well, yep. we have a B2B version of that. So on one side of it, we have all the retail. So our customers are department stores, multi-label boutiques and online retailers like Netaporter. So that's on one side of the network. On the other side of the network is all the virtual showrooms we have for the designers. And then the platform allows you to come in, view collections, add to your bag, add to your cart if you like. But, you know, our cart size is like, you know, minimum orders like a 5,000 US through to hundreds of thousands of millions of, of dollars in terms of placing wholesale orders. So the platform operates fairly logically. But what stands it apart from what you see in a lot of the consumer world is the enhanced technology that we have to add into it. So if um, let's just take an example here. I'm a buyer at David Jones and, you know, I buy uh, Givenchy and it's in the seventh floor there and, and, you know, it's a beautiful, really resolved, very detailed collection. So, And I'm going to place an order for maybe half a million dollars worth of stock. So I want to make sure I'm making the right choice and I understand thoroughly about what I'm buying because at wholesale, you can't return it. Once you bought it, it's yours and you've got to sell it. And if you can't sell it, well, you know, that's where you lose money. So it's really important to understand what you're buying. So if I'm going to buy a beautiful collection, if I've just got a a front, back and side pick of a a very detailed jacket, that's really not enough to understand it. You know, how does it fit? How does it drape? You know, uh, what's the detail? What's the button? What's the stitching? So uh, when I'm in the physical showroom, I have the opportunity to see that 
jacket on a model and I can get the model to turn around and I can go up and close and, uh, and I can see it. So we had to try and replicate that online. So we, we went to a number of technologies and the first technology we went to was 360 degree view. So, I mean, you're in the film industry and, and this was really initially developed for the film industry and the first evidence we everyone ever saw of it was in the Matrix actually. If you remember that famous scene when Keanu like goes back and dodges the bullet, you know, that was shot with a, an incredible... 360 degree rig in LA but it was 72 cameras it fitted in a huge room it took three or four days to render it just wasn't applicable to the fashion industry the fashion industry does everything just in time so you know they finish their wholesale collections just in time before they go on sale so there's no opportunity to pick up that collection and take it to a studio in LA and have it for three or four weeks and digitize it so we invented technology which was mobile and the inspiration for it came from my constant travel in airports. It's just like I keep walking through these scanners, you know, and put my arms up and zit and they can see everything. I was like, mm, okay, well, why couldn't we do that and create an instantaneous 360-degree image? And then why couldn't we upload that straight to the cloud and then put it straight in our virtual showrooms? And so we can, you know, in one day capture an entire collection and load it straight in. So that's what we developed in our technology called Orb360. Um, it, it's beautiful. It, it develops absolutely gorgeous images that don't need to be retouched. Um, and buyers can interact with them so you can spin them around and you can zoom in on all the details. So that was the first tech. And then, uh, then we've moved into virtual reality. The Mr. Amani experience, you know, here designers are putting huge energy into putting clothes on models and making them walk up and down so you can see the movement and drape. But if you can't get to the fashion show, you know, yes, you can watch the video and that's cool, you know, watch the video, but there's better tech now. So we shoot all the fashion shows in 360 degree video, which allows you to have the experience through a VR headset. So we provide our buyers headsets around the world and through a very simple app, they download a fashion show into their app, put it into the headset, and they can be sitting in the front row of Mr. Romani's show um, and they can look up and down and really get the experience. So we, we use a lot of that tech. And then another very, you know, simple thing is we use storytelling, you know, is that here's a new season collection and um, let's get the designer to tell the buyers about my collection. So We'll go and do an interview with um, Diane von Fostenberg or Stella McCartney or Matthews who just taken over Givenchy or, or Mr. Amani and say, okay, can you please tell the buyers about this collection? Now, they might do that in a very sort of sit-down way or they might stand up by the rack and show it. So we're trying to provide as much information as we can so that the buyer at David Jones after – consuming all this communication go i know exactly the jacket i want i know how many you want bang 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 and away they go and they can put that order through the platform so it's a pretty logical process but the tech wasn't there so we had to develop it ourselves and that's been interesting scary and expensive thanks for those insights that's amazing from a business point of view Obviously, you know, you're the dreamer, but you've also then got to follow through and have the capital to be able to develop it, build it, create it and deliver it quickly yeah. like mm. you have to in the fashion world. So where did you kind of come up with the dosh to bankroll this thing and how has it sort of rolled out over the last couple of years? What sort of numbers or anything you can share with sure, us? Sure, sure. Well, it's been an interesting one. and It's been a, a new part of my career understanding this because, you know, for 20 or so years, the majority of our businesses were based here in, in Australia. We ran TropFest for 10 years, the film festival. We had Spin, uh, which is a big advertising PR agency, and we had Australian Fashion Week. And, you know, we grew those businesses very successfully over a 20-year period, and we grew them out of our own cash flow. So we could only advance them as much as the profits we were making. You know, banks here are... They pretend they love lending money to small business. They don't. They hate it. The only way they'll give you money if you give them your house. You know, you've got to have security. So we were always a debt-free business here in Australia, and we were able to grow gradually out of our own cash flow. But all of a sudden, you know, I've stepped outside of that environment, and I've stepped into an international arena, and I've also stepped into. If you can't get this stuff to market 
in an appropriate time, you're going to miss out and someone's just going to step over the top of you. So timing has a much greater um, impact. You just can't, you know, let it, you know, evolve and, and grow slowly. So we did well out of selling Fashion Week um, and the other companies. And then, you know, I've always backed myself. And so myself and Kirsten put all that money into Ord and we thought it was going to be enough to get us to launch. And we were really close, you know, to the platform going uh, going live and then we'd run out of money seriously run out of money like you know we we were where the, the tank was was running on reserve you know um and so we were like okay we have to start fundraising we didn't want to do it through debt because that just didn't suit us and i just don't like borrowing money from people so we did it through equity and that is you know raising money through selling equity in the company um i never had a lot of experience in in this um but We'd seen a lot of tech companies go and do angels rounds of funding, Series A, Series B, Series C, um, you know, establishing a, uh, a valuation and saying, okay, we think the company's worth $5 million, um, and we're going to sell 10% of it for half a million. Who'd like it, you know? Um, and that's basically what we did. So we, at this stage, were based in Hong Kong we um, had decided that that was a good center globally to start an international company. And also because of my time working for IMG a bit, I was able to um, have residency in Hong Kong, register a company there. So there was a lot of good things about corporately doing that. And so through a network of angel investors in Hong Kong, we raised um, our first amount of money, uh, which was a couple of million US. And we did that at uh, pretty good valuations for for an early developed company and uh, then that got us to market you know so that got us to proof of concept that got us a few clients that got talk that you know women's wear down are going oh my god look what simon's done this time and so you know there's a bit of vibe around it and then since then we've been able to do three funding rounds you know we've raised a total now of uh, nearly 50 million us dollars and um, we have, you know, invested that all back into the company. And, uh, you know, at this point, we have a, uh, a very valuable company that is growing fast. And, um, you know, I think we're, we're going to be able to mature our tech so that, you know, it, it really has a, a lasting impact on, on the industry. And, and that's really exciting. Man, it's incredible. Ballsy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, yeah, I've put it all back on the table a few times. I'm, I don't know. It's scary. Yeah, definitely. Uh, oh, that's gold. And can you share the kind of turnover that you're doing now? Yeah, well, in terms of revenues, um, between this year and next year, we're going to be, you know, our, our revenues annually are growing from, you know, 5 million US to 10 million US. I mean, this is starting to get pretty serious revenues now. I mean, you know, in three to five years, we'll probably be up around about that 50 million in revenues. So it's quite substantial. And, uh, you know, there's um, corporately, you know, it's interesting where, where we go from here in terms of um, we've had some initial discussions with the big tech giants. I mean, you know, Amazon and Facebook and, and Apple see what we do as being interesting and potentially, you know, they might think that we, we could be part of their tech empire. That's scary. You know, we've, we've had a little experience with that. I um, mean, one of our um, earlier funding rounds, Alibaba from um, China, you know, biggest Chinese tech company, became a shareholder on the company. And we've learned a lot through that, both good and bad. So um, we're, we'd be cautious, I think, about getting too in bed with one of the big tech companies. I think particularly at the moment too, there's a, a lot of hesitation about the control um, and the data. And that we have some of our larger clients in Europe, we have um, Amazon Web Services as the, the, the grunt behind uh, a lot of our um, a lot of our data when we work with them we can't let any part of their company their data their images touch amazon because the company policy is nothing we do can touch amazon nothing and even though that you know you're, you're completely protected that's just the way it is so i think there's becoming a lot of you know 
skepticism about, um, perhaps that's the wrong word, a lot of nervousness about getting too in bed with the big tech players and the monopolies they're sort of developing. So, so you know, I mean, there's other people saying that, you know, maybe we'll be in a position to do an IPO or something like that, which, which would be great. I think, you know, personally, it's like, yes, you want to see an exit, you know, I mean, because an exit allows you to, to have the cash you've always wanted, you know, to, to, to buy the houses you never owned and whatever it might be, you know, because you put everything into the business. Well, it's completing a cycle of action as well, isn't it? It you is. Know, things have a start, you know, a, yeah. a middle and a finish and you want yeah. to know that you can <laughs> see it through in whatever you way you want to. But also, too, I mean, what we're doing now is, you know, I really feel we are creating a legacy for the way the industry operates, where we're changing things. And, you know, I want to see that through, you know. So, yeah, I think there's a, I think there's a balance here that we're going to find over the next couple of years. The good thing is, is that, you know, it's now we're starting to see that there's opportunities for that sort of thing happening based on the success of the company. So it's exciting. It's incredible. You work very closely with your wife and you've got a couple of young kids and, you know, I mean, I think a couple of your children from an earlier marriage work with you as well. Absolutely, so yeah, yeah, it's yeah. very much the family business. It is in some way, yeah. <laughs> it, it must be pretty intense. You two must be working, you know, day and night, seven days a week, developing and building this business. I mean, everyone talks about work-life balance. I work with my wife. I don't know about that. We just sort of seem to work and create day and night, seven days a week. And I try and get in the water for a swimmer or a surf or something every day. That kind of clears my head. Everyone has their way of doing that. How are you two managing this rocket ride and raising a couple of young kids and keeping your marriage intact? And got any tips? And how are you making that work? Well, look, I think some of it's based on, I guess, the unique relationship that I think Kirs and I have. And then, you know, some of it's based on the, the wonderful experience my two ex-wives have given me. Thank you both very much. Um, and the three elder children that, that I have. Certainly, I think in my life and particularly when I was developing Australian Fashion Week, I mean, I was so hell-bent on on making it successful that, you know, I really did sacrifice a lot of family time. You know, I, I really did sacrifice two marriages to my business, you know, and there's no other way to put it. I had the wrong priorities. There's no doubt about that. And so I, I learnt by that. And I think by the time that, you know, fate put Kirsten and I together, we very early on really made a pact that whatever we did, we did together and that, Kirsten was aware of those mistakes. I was. The three older children were, and we just we didn't want to create an environment where history may repeat itself. So, so we really we really made a pact to do things differently, and that's been really cool because because um, I met Kirsten in Dubai. I, when I sold Fashion Week, I took a couple of years out, and went skiing in Japan, and was living in Japan. And then I got a call from. These guys in Dubai going, oh, please come and sort out Dubai Fashion Week. And I'm like, nah, I'm, I'm so done with Fashion Weeks. You know, I'm building a ski lodge and I'm going skiing for the rest of my life. You know, I'm not coming. And then as often the case is, and they encourage you with, have you seen the size of this check? <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh, no. So I went over there to do a consultancy job basically. And I met Kirsten and we fell in love. And she was um, style director at Harper's Bazaar at the time. And then um, the choice was, oh, do you want to come and help me build the ski lodge? And you can be Mrs. Ski Lodge and I can be Mr. Ski Lodge for the next couple of years. And she's <laughs> like, yeah, you got anything else? And I'm just like, well, actually, I have been working on this. And she's like, yeah, yeah, I think this, we need to do this. And so um, we um, decided Hong Kong's a place to develop it. We both moved back to Hong Kong and then it took off and then we really needed to be forward-facing with the clients. And so we were constantly in London, Paris, Milan and New York, flying around the world, encouraging people. And then we decided to base ourselves in Paris because that was, we felt, the most beautiful city for us to be in and allow us to travel. And then we started to have our babies, Gigi and, uh, and Beatrix. And then we were constantly traveling together and we were a really good double act because... 
you know, I often say we're the, the art and commerce bit. Kirsten has an innate talent for particularly identifying emerging designers. There's no trend. There's nothing she doesn't know. So if you put her in the room with, you know, Alessandra Michelle, who's the head designer at Gucci, they can speak the same language, you know, day in, day out. You know, I can talk about how I can make his more money, you know. So we were a really good team from that perspective. And so uh, this double act we had traveling around the world was great. And then enter Gigi. And so we just put her into that mix and we just kept traveling. And obviously we were fortunate enough to be able to have a nanny. And so we just we just went all together. So we were never a night apart. And, um, you know, Gigi for the last five years is, has grown up speaking French, traveling the world, having friends in New York, friends in London, friends here, da da da, da you know, gypsy life. But it's worked for our family. And then, you know, we were uh, continuing that way of living and, and working and being together. So there's just no line in our life between work, play, social, family. It's just all the same. And then, of course, I was very keen to involve my elder children in the business. And uh, at one stage or another, they've all been full-time or part-time and two of them still are. And that's that's been very joyous because in earlier life, they never understood you know, why I wasn't there. And now they're like, we understand it. Doesn't say we liked it, but at least we understand it. And now we're involved with you. And so, yeah, it's um, it's um, it perhaps doesn't work for everyone, but it certainly works for our family at the moment. Yeah, Kirsten sounds like a powerhouse as well. So, um, you know, well done, you guys. And yeah, um, she's a force of nature ke- <laughs> in her own way. <laughs> yeah, keeping it all firing. Hey, um, let's go back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Where did you grow up and, you know, what kind of kid were you at school and did you go to college or how did you wind up in advertising? I know you you were a creative at Saatchi and Saatchi. Yeah, tell us about that part of the journey. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think, you know, who I am, I think, and the journey I've had it has a great deal to do with the defining nature of, of my father who was really quite an extraordinary man and probably the greatest influence he had on our family and, and along with my mother is that at a very early age, he, he was a very successful businessman in his own right and we had a quite a, a tragedy in our family and uh, his business partner who was my uncle uh, passed away very suddenly and uh, after that dad decided to sell that business they had together but uh, instead of carrying on into another business or another profession he decided to take us around the world for five years and so I was only young and so was my brother Richard and uh, packed us off on a boat six weeks to England then we lived in Surrey then we lived in Wales and we lived in Spain then we traveled in a caravan for 18 months around the continent and then we went to South America and everywhere and so uh, I basically didn't have a lot of formal schooling during that time I, I came back to an Australian primary school in Mount Waverley in Victoria feeling completely at odds with my surroundings after experiencing you know traveling around the world coming back to a very, very uh, conservative, white, Anglo-Saxon, you know, suburban life in Melbourne, which was jarring, not particularly good at school. I found it difficult to get into friendship groups because I'd been missing, sort of, you know. And so I think that had a, a big effect on me, but then also had an equal effect as we were traveling because, you know, the way we were treated as Australians was almost like, in some senses that we were second-class citizens because, you know, Australian didn't have a great reputation at that particular point for being particularly sophisticated. You know, we were a great place to go for holidays. We were good at sport, but, uh, you know, pretty casual. And, you know, that was – and and you, we were moving in, in, in a world that was very different to that. And, you know, I always felt that just opposed position. And, and I think later in life it, it, it came – to the reason why I was so passionate about Australian Fashion Week because it was a way internationally of saying, well, we're not who you think we are. You know, we are sophisticated, we're creative, we're talented. We can compete in one of the most beautiful industries in the world of fashion. So you should think about us differently, you know. And I think that whole 
throw a shrimp on the Barbie era of Australian culture overseas actually did us a lot of damage, you know, and I think actually it's been the creative industries, the film industry, the music industry and the fashion industry that's created a, a different persona about who we are as Australians and I, and I think – I think hopefully I've had part of a contribution to that, which has been great. That's wonderful, mate. That's really interesting. I didn't know, you know, all that travel created a worldly, you know, young man. And Mm. yeah, it's interesting. Mm. So I got it that you didn't do well at school. It's interesting how many people I've had on the podcast. I've been amazed how many left school early or didn't do well at school. And I find it really inspiring for people out there because, you know, a lot of kids struggle at school and think, oh, my God, so much pressure. I'm never going to make anything of myself because I'm not doing well at school. Well, I love telling people, hey, you know, the world, your future is a blank canvas, you know. Yeah, I think there's definitely other pathways. I mean, I was not a good student. I mean, I did have the opportunity to go to a good school in Melbourne, Campbell Grammar School, and and then, you know, I I attempted to go to university but really failed there. But it always, I guess, had an entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, you know, my mother tells stories about me selling dirt and jam bottles to the people next door for, you know, whatever, to raise pocket money. I had a, you know, I had a milk run and I had a, you know, paper run and all that sort of stuff when I was a kid. But then um, when I um, came out of, you know, high school era and I went into – my, my dad was um, then a director at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and got me a holiday job in there. And with not having a lot of direction, you know, I went into – you know, I had this grandiose idea that I was going to become a doctor and I was just so far away from HSC marks to get anywhere near that. And so when I couldn't become a doctor, I decided I'd wanted to become – an oceanographer because I get to surf a lot, but you had to do an applied degree in geology. So I started that with rocks. I mean, God only knows why. And then that didn't work, obviously. Went back to my holiday job. I thought, okay, well, perhaps I could be a health administrator like Dad. And I threw myself at that. And um, it was very bizarre. So turns out that while you know I didn't have a lot of administrative education, that when I threw myself and with my, my work ethic – I started to accelerate through the admin department and started off as a a clerk in the supply room. Then I was an assistant purchasing officer. And all of a sudden, I found myself at the age of 20 as the assistant supply manager of the Royal Melbourne Hospital with a staff of like 35 people and a budget of $90 million. And it's just like, how did that happen? It was bizarre. And then I sort of... You know, sitting there looking at myself, I looked like I was 35. I was wearing a three-piece suit. I had this tragic moustache and I was going bald. And I was just like, what am I doing? (laughs) What am I doing? Um, And I guess my entrepreneurial self had kicked in and, you know, the biggest passion in my life apart from uh, my family is is skiing and subsequently surfing. And so I hatched a plan with my buddies that, if we could do anything, we could make a living out of skiing. Let's start our own ski shop. And so at the ripe old age of 2021, 20, we did a whole stake of research, came up with a, a business plan to open Pro Ski, the, the best skiers ski shop in uh, in the world based in Glenfrey Road in Hawthorne. And at the tender age of 22, we uh, convinced, stroke conned, two businessmen into loaning us uh, enough equity finance. They had 50%. They actually had 51% because there was no way they were going to let us run it. Um, we had 49%. And we, we launched ProSki. Um, business ran for 17 years, was, uh, was a huge success, a lot of innovation in, in the ski industry. But as a small business, it taught me um, how to deal with people. It taught me uh, how to market, how to buy, how to manage, how to run a bank account. It was such a great incubator to learn business. And you know, I and I, I okay, this is it. This, you know, th- this is this is the shit I like doing. And then a very you know interesting journey from there. I started to write for uh, newspapers about my ski exploits. Um, a PR company saw them and said, oh, you're you right. Well, you should become a PR consultant. And they offered me, you know, I can remember it was 35000 Australian dollars at the time. And I was just like, that would be like, you know, some kid out of school being offered like, you know, 150 grand now. I was just like, sorry, you're going to pay me how much? And I'm like, okay, we're putting someone in the shop. I'm going to go and do this PR thing. So I, I, I excelled quite 
quickly at this PR thing. And then unusual set of circumstances, I was at Saatchi's uh, working in PR and the managing director of Saatchi and Saatchi PR in Australia had had a falling out with Morris and Charles Saatchi. And they had decided that it, it all wasn't going the way that they liked and that they were going to close that business down and they were just going to buy a big PR company and put their name on the door. And this is what was going to happen. I, I didn't like the sound of that. So somehow I, I got them both on the phone <laughs> in London. And, and they're like, sorry, who is this? I'm like, hi, hi, my name's Simon Locke. Look, you, I know you're going to close this thing down. I tell you what, you know, look, you're paying me $35,000, which is great, but why don't you let me be managing director? Give me six months and I'll turn this puppy around. And they're like, sorry, who are you again? I'm like, just, you know, just give me six months. And, you know, um, I've, I had a chat to all the other staff and they're going to back me. And they're like, sorry, what's your name? They're like, okay. So... They sent their chief operating officer, a guy by the name of Tim Bell, who was very, you know, you might have heard him in advertising, he came to Australia and I had I had to do the pitch to him and he's like, yeah, okay, okay, we'll give you a go. So I got appointed as managing director of Saatchi and Saatchi's PR. I'd been in public relations for nine months. Holy shit. <laughs> and, um, and we turned that puppy around. And that's when I, I guess I learnt the importance of teamwork, you know, because – if it was left to me, I, I didn't know anything. But with the team around me and the great people had the experience together, all I was was the catalyst, you know. And, um, yeah, that, that turned out to be a very successful business and it was through that business that, you know, led me to eventually start my, my own agencies in Australia. Wow, that's amazing. What about the fashion? Where does that come from, do you think? Yeah, it's uh, – it's an interesting one. I guess there's two sides of it is that I think that the fashion interest in my early years having seen fashion in Europe and how people dress in the med or, you know, on Miami with long socks or just a different sort of vibe intrigued me. And so I'd always, you know, personal style had always become sort of important to me even when I was a kid. And then I had uh, – uh, a wonderful grandmother who lived with me for, for most of my growing years right up until teenager. She was very stylish, but she had this peculiar thing. Every season, she would get rid of a summer wardrobe, replace it with her winter wardrobe, and then all the summer wardrobe would go off to St. Vincent's, and then she'd go out and buy And it's just like, well, what are you doing, man? And she says, oh, well, you know, it's the change of the seasons. This is how fashion works. You know, each season, you replace it with the new season, and you get new stuff, I'm just like, this is insane, you know. And I can remember actually sitting in her bedroom watching as she'd change the seasons over in a wardrobe um, and go and get new outfits and put it together. It just always intrigued me. And then and then later in life when, when we'd got spin together and uh, we'd started to do some work with some of the Australian designers, people like Joe Sabo um, and Colette, people like that, and it was just like everyone's trying to get more noticed in Australia and, you know, someone said, gee, wouldn't it be good if we had a fashion week here? You know, so hard for us to go over to Paris or to Milan if we could bring everyone here. And this thought just captivated me. And I can remember Nan and her seasonal changes and I started to understand marketing and the fashion industry and we're starting to do events then. It's just like, yeah, this is really interesting. So um, I took myself off overseas and hacked my way into London, Paris, Milan, and New York and looked at how they were doing things and, and how the whole structure of the International Fashion Week circuit worked. And this was about 92, I guess, and came back and said, yep, I reckon we can do this, but we're going to do it differently and we're going to give ourselves advantages that those four old-fashioned Fashion Weeks uh, we're doing so we did things differently we created a centralized schedule we did global marketing we did we did things that that gave us a competitive advantage over the others and uh, so yeah that's sort of and it, you know, it took us four years of work and development and um, and then the first event happened in uh, in 96. It's an incredible story because really, you know, Australian fashion wasn't taken seriously on the global stage at that time at it was all. laughed at. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I got laughed at I, many times. Yeah, I bet. So it was a visionary move and thing you created. 
give us an insight into a conversation you might have had with, I don't know, a major sponsor or someone that came on board when you're saying, hey, I'm going to take Australian designers to the world and we're going to compete with, you know, New York, Milan, Paris, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I know you're, a, you know, you've got the gift of the gab, but that's that's quite an achievement. Yeah, well, I guess it, it, I just I think there was a sense of that no one believed it was possible. There was, you know, this holy grail of London, Paris, Milan and New York and we'd only ever see it through the pages of Vogue and that was just so unachievable. And then you'd go to, you know, the big retailers in Paris, you know, Galo Lafayette or Prontemps, and I'd get in to see them and say, you know, you should come and see, you know, you should see Colin Dinigan, you should see Morrissey Edmondson. Oh, my God, they're amazing, you know. And they'd be like, who? I mean, by that time, Colette was a little known in Paris. So she was a big fish out of big water at that stage. But no one else had really been heard of. Um, but, you know, I knew we just had amazing talent. But the talent needed to believe in itself because the, the, what, what worked was, again, I think what Australian Fashion Week was most successful at in the early years was being a catalyst, was bringing our whole industry together at one time and we all came together. We realized how powerful we were because one person couldn't do it alone. And, it, you know, there was a couple of, you know, key people that were important in, in convincing the industry that we had the confidence. So, you know, people like Nancy Pilcher and Jane DeTalliger who were leading in the media, they, they believed in me so other people started to believe in me. You know, I got quite close to the Keatings there for a little while and we had Anita Keating who believed in me and she opened up Kirribilli House and said, okay, Simon, let's see what we can do here. I bet you those designers won't turn down an invitation to Kirribilli, will they? Let's, let's invite them over for afternoon tea and you can have a chat to them. So, <laughs> so that was good. And then, you know, we had people like Peter Collins who was then treasurer of New South Wales, you know, going, okay, look, I get it. I'm arts minister as well as treasurer. I get it. You know, we need to promote ourselves. We're more than, you know, a, a sporting nation. So so he got it. Um, and then, you know, we were eventually able to convince um, Mercedes-Benz, I mean, you know, unheard of, first fashion week ever to have any corporate sponsorship was us, let alone a naming rights partner because, you know, the event was Mercedes Australian Fashion Week. And um, it was an incredible, uh, incredible situation that, uh, that happened, which is, um, I won't bore you too long with the story, but we'd been negotiating with BMW and we had BMW basically at the table ready to sign. This was, the first event was in May 96. This was in October, November, the year before. So we're only six months out from the event. We're at the table to sign, lawyers are at the table and BMW go, Look, there's one small point we'd like to make here. Happy to sign up with this program, but we're not going to pay you for the first year. We'll only pay you for year two, three, four, or five. And I'm like, what do you mean? They go, yeah, 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 yeah. That's the way we're going to do it. It's like you pulled the how, what, you know, I've made commitments. I've got, d -d 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 it's just like, are you joking me? I was proud of myself because I really did want to jump over the table and rip their throats out. But I just held my cool. I said, okay, well, I just need to think about this. Left the room. I'm like, right, these guys, they're now my enemy. Who's their enemy? Mercedes-Benz. So that afternoon, I just rung and rung and rung and rung until I got through to Bernd Schleckham, who was the chairman of Asia Pacific and Mercedes-Benz. And my first words with him was, hi, I'm Simon Locke and we have a mutual enemy in BMW and I want to crush them. <laughs> and he's like, sorry. <laughs> and I said, we are going to create huge news around Australian world about fashion. You have cars that are for old people, right? I know that Mercedes are bringing out the A class, the B class, and the C class, okay? But you need to connect with younger people. You need to be cool. You need to be fashionable. And fashion's your ticket to ride here. And he's just like, but we sponsored the symphony. And we sponsored <laughs> the arts. And we sponsored the opera. And I go, yeah, it's not going to work. And he's like, who are you? And I'm like, I'm coming to see you. And so- 
came to seeing Bert. And Bert was he was he was almost about to retire. And he went, you know what? You're right. Okay, let's do this. And so we signed what turned out to be the the longest fashion sponsorship in the world, Mercedes-Benz, not only sponsored Australian Fashion Week through Burnt, we took the concept to Stuttgart and they ended up sponsoring 17 fashion weeks around the world. And it was all on the back of, yeah, fashion was the right industry to connect with because they had new stuff coming out. And, um, yeah, it was a, an amazing partnership and, um, yeah, just happened like that. That is phenomenal. Crazy. Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> Sorry, BMW, you had your chance, but you blew it. <laughs> oh, that is wild. And I think there's, I mean, at that stage, there was just the main fashion weeks. And since you created the one here, there's now hundreds of them that have kind of replicated your format in a, in a way, isn't there? Yeah, it was really interesting because the major four were operating and Tokyo was had been operating, but just really domestically. No one had really heard of it at that stage. And, you know, I was really trying to build camaraderie between the other four so that I could be seen as part of the family. That, you know, Didier who rang Paris and Mr. Modernese that ran um, Milan and my good friend now, Fern Malice, that ran New York and Simon that rang BFC. They're just like, dude, you know, go away. <laughs> you know, no one's going to go to a fashion week in the Southern Hemisphere. You know, it's all about the Northern Hemisphere cycle. It's all about this. And so, you know, that were just like, you know, good luck. But then once we gathered momentum, it really took us about five years to gather momentum. Once we gathered momentum and then, you know, it was really Godfrey Deeney who was at the Financial Times in London came out one year and, and he wrote a headline that basically said that London, Paris, Milan, New York has a rival as Sydney um, and it's a credentialed fashion week and you should go there. And that, that was really instrumental and put us on the map. And then what happened is that a lot of – industries and cities that felt they had a fashion community felt, my God, if this Antipodean country, Sydney, where they had no designers anyone heard of, who's now launched Subi, Sassenbide, Zimmerman, Camilla and Mark, you know, they're all coming out of Australia. Um, hang on, why can't we do that? And, um, yeah, I think the, the New York Times, you know, it was around about year 10, had said that there was now 271 fashion weeks around the world and, uh, you know, some commentators, you know, felt that, you know, the precedent we set had had a quite an influence in doing that. It's incredible. Now, I've, you know, directed commercials for fashion weeks. I've done a lot of fashion you work. You have. You uh, have. <laughs> over the years and I've, I've been to a lot of fashion weeks as a spectator and with my wife often and, Sometimes you're like dancing on the table at a Colette Dinigan show, I remember. <laughs> that's <laughs> as part of the act, not not after dinner. <laughs> no, no, that's that's absolutely, absolutely right. So I've kind of, you know, had an insight into the number of moving parts and the complexity of bringing all of these creative people together with these incredibly tight timelines, with high pressure live events, with a heap of media a lot of celebrities, I mean, just down to the question of, okay, who sits on the front row? So multiply that by how many shows might you have running 70. at a festival? Okay, 70 shows, 70 lots of people invited, 70 lots of media invited. Who sits where? Incredibly complicated. How the hell did you manage that for that long and keep people on side? Because it's a pretty intense thing running something like that and not – pissing people off for want yeah. of a better expression along the way. And you've been incredibly successful and most of us know about the tall poppy phenomena here in Australia. How have you managed to do that? And really, I've, you know, rarely heard a bad word about you. So well done for pulling that off. How do you think you manage that? And give us, I don't know, give us a saucy story about sure. how you managed some <clears throat> big names who weren't happy with their seat. Sure. Well, I think first of all, is I love it. I love being in the middle of it. I, I love being in the middle of a fashion week where there's not only 70 shows on the collection, there's another 50 events to be going to over, say, a 10-day period and priding myself that I'm there sitting front row or attending every single event. I'm not going to miss anything that's on the official schedule because, you know, that's my commitment to the people that are supporting the event and supporting me. So it's like... 
you know, a theatre show, doing a premiere of a, of a theatre show and doing it seven times a day. So every single show is unique. None of them are rehearsed. It happens and it happens one and one time only. So you either get it right or you get it very wrong. So, you know, each of those shows takes a couple of hundred people to produce by the time you've got backstage and front of house and, you know, all the production and all the models and all the hair and makeup and all the creative services that needed to come together. And I guess as an industry, we all learnt together. So in that first year in 96, yeah, the Wayne Cooper show that was the first show, yeah, it was the first show on the schedule and it was two and a half hours late because we really didn't know what we were doing. I mean, we brought in some international experts to train us. It just took us a couple of years to really understand how long you needed for hair and makeup, understand about dressing models, understand about lights, sound, music, getting DJs involved, the, the seating, the, the the problems, the buyers, the media, the celebrities, the sponsors. So we, we learnt a, a lot of this, but, but, but I think we learnt it all together. And so there was a, a group of us of probably 100 or so, 200 core people that all became very very synced together backstage front of house the prs the lighting and we just grew up together we grew up with a with a sense that we can do this you know and so that camaraderie and then of course my role again is the catalyst is to be in the middle making the decisions on the absolute moment that has to be made so that the train can keep going you know so okay all the power's gone out you know and we've got 10 more shows. What are we going to do? And it's just like, okay, snap decision. That next show we're doing outside. Get everyone outside now. Get all the chairs outside. You've got 10 minutes to make it happen. Go, you know? So in those situations, just someone needs to make a decision to make it happen, you know? Um, Kim and Chloe Kardashian have walked into the front row and they're really pissed because no one knew who they were and they're sitting in the second row, you know. And so Brian Walsh from Foxtel's going, you can't have them. So it's like, okay, right, move here, girls. You're sitting next to me, whatever it is. I mean, you, you just make decisions on the move um, and you just have got to stick by them. They're not always the right decisions and sometimes you make mistakes but you know you're always laughing about them later with everyone usually but yeah it's 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 an amazing adrenaline thing and and i i do miss it in what we're doing now because you know that live physical event we're not part of that world anymore and i do miss it but um yeah there's nothing like it is uh yeah it's addictive that's awesome. We've talked a lot about the successes. Is is there a call that you made that was wrong that you could share that you learnt from? Um, yeah, I think that there's been a number of times when I haven't backed people in our organisation that I should have. You know, I've made I've made the wrong call on people. I haven't given them the support they needed to be able to um, to flourish within what I've been doing and so they've gone off and done it by themselves very, very successfully. So I think there's been some, you know, issues there. Um, you know, so, I mean, you know, it was very nice to hear you say people don't speak badly of me but I think sometimes my enthusiasm gets used to, I don't think so much now, used to translate as being arrogant, you know, and I used to get a lot of criticism about that but, you know, I, I've become extraordinarily thick-skinned, you know, so that, that hasn't um, – yeah, I mean, yes, I, I let my business life affect my personal life, <laughs> you know, that was a mistake, but I've learnt from that mistake. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that's an answer. No, no, that's cool. Thanks, mate. It's interesting. I think the, you know, the Australian fashion industry and the designers have benefited greatly from you championing them and, you know, so hats off to you for that because it's a really important, vibrant, wonderful business that brings a lot of joy to a lot of people. And, um, you know, it's just such an incredible creative expression, fashion. It's easy to kind of go, oh, it's just fashion. But really, it brings a lot of joy and a, and a lot of creativity and a lot of aesthetics into people's lives. I think it does also too. I mean, you know, it, it can be often discounted as uh frivolous or not of any sort of importance but 
I think there's two sides of fashion which make it very important. And the first is that, you know, fashion is how we express our individuality. Um, it doesn't matter what you wear, how you wear it, the way you put it together. This is you expressing whom you are. Maybe you don't really care about that and that's expressed in what you've got on. Maybe you care too much, you know. But I like to think that I use fashion to try to visually communicate who I am, you know, the sort of shoes I wear or the sort of jeans I wear or the jewellery I wear or whatever, trying to say, well, this is who I am as a person, you know. Some people want to go, okay, well, actually, I just want to cover myself in blackness so I don't show who I am. So so I think this is a, an incredible thing that fashion provides this this flexibility to to be able to visually communicate and express who you are and then the other part of fashion is that you know it's connected to the employment of so many great creative industries because it's not just the people that make the clothes but you know filmmakers and creative people and artists and graphic designers and, and hair and makeup and so many creative services involved in the industry and then of course the retail part of the industry is such an employer here in Australia as well so um, yeah I think there's those sort of esoteric values of fashion but then there's the the economics of, of fashion which I think is important as well for Australia. Yeah, I agree. Who was the first fashion designer that came on board when you were trying to get Fashion Week off the ground that you'd you know, like to thank? Well, <clears throat> it's Morrissey Edmondson. I, quite frankly, I don't know whether we would have got the Jumbo Jet off the ground that first year with, uh, without them. And it was, um, you, you may remember back at the time, that they were the hottest things in sliced bread. Oh, yeah. They were like, you know. They were uh, rock stars. Michael Hutchins, you know, Helena Christensen. I mean, everyone. They were just like, they were just, just absolute rock stars, um, particularly here in, uh, here in Sydney. Um, and I didn't know them. But my business partner in spin, Simon Bookalil, was uh, new Jason Brunston, who was then Peter Morrissey's boyfriend. And, um, and Simon said, look, you know, would you meet with Simon? He's got this crazy idea that, that he wants to put to you. And uh, I can remember going to the little studio in Maclay Street and, and you're having an audience with the king and queen. Basically, I mean, you know, they, they really were that important. And Jason was there as well, who, of course, subsequently went on to do his own great label, Jason Brunson. And sitting there with, uh, with Peter and Leona and explaining the concept of what I was going to do and how I was going to do it. And they both just sat there and, and looked at each other and Pete said, Delano, what do you think? Leona was saying, yeah, yeah. And they went, okay, we're in and you can tell everyone that you want to that we're in and if you need to speak to anyone, get them to call us. And as a result of that, they were the domino. So as soon as they said yes, everybody else said yes. Oh, Morrissey Edmondson are in? Oh, I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. And so that's really what got us going. They were very, very instrumental and very influential in that, in that first year. And boy, did they rock, honestly. For the next couple of years, you know, they just really blew. We were then at Fox Studios, first big event at Fox Studios. Um, and, yeah, they were just I, I, was, I went to that one. Yeah. yeah, incredible. Yeah, amazing. That's very cool. What about the latest venture, Order, who was the sort of most important or key designer that came on that um, launched that into the stratosphere? Well, look, I think... The first designer to come on board, who, a bit like Morrissey Emerson, said yes, as we found there was uh, Jonathan Saunders, who uh, um, had a big label in London, who subsequently went on to be the creative director of DVF, and that was very influential uh, uh, amongst those. But I think probably right now, um, biggest, most influential designer we have is the most influential designer in the world, and that's Louis Vuitton. And we've, you know, we've been circling them for uh, for a number of years, and uh, now they're very committed to our business. And uh, you know, it's just like, you know, I, I'm really pinching myself every day. <laughs> it's like, wow, we work with Louis Vuitton. <laughs> you know, it's like pretty awesome. So, um, but not just them. You know, we're working with Givenchy, we're working with Balmain, we're working with Chloe, we're working with Yoji Yamamoto, we're working with Alexander Wang, we're working with Michael Kors. I mean, it's just. You know, wow, I'm seriously? <laughs> so so you're literally the company that's digitizing their collections and bringing them virtually to the rest of the world. Go figure, hey? 
<laughs> I know it's 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 uh, Simon Lock. It's, it's a long insane. way from that little ski shop down in uh, <laughs> what was it, Glen Ferry Road? <laughs> Eight thirty-four Glen Ferry Road. <laughs> that is incredible, mate. We're nearly there. I guess you know you're a creative guy. You're a creative entrepreneur. Have you got any advice for? entrepreneurs out there and people that are facing a career change as a lot of people are with um, what's transpired over the last year any tips you'd like to pass on to people and even kids leaving school who are going oh my god you know what chance have I got of you know fulfilling my goals and dreams in this uh, economic climate what have you got to say to yeah look I think it's a pretty simple one just don't be fearful of failure you know don't not do something because you're just scared you know, give it a go, you know. You've got to back yourself, you know, and believe in your gut and your in- instinct. You, you, you hear this a lot from, you know, entrepreneurs that you've got to believe in yourself and, uh, you know, if, if you've got an idea and if it's well-researched, you know, give it a go. Get out there and push and, 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 and don't give up. I mean, these successes you, you've heard us talk about, I mean, they don't come without constant knockbacks. Again and again and again, banging my head against the wall and going, no, but you don't understand. Virtual showrooms are going to be a thing, you know, or, you know, you don't understand. You know, come to the other side of the world and see your fashion week. It's going to be great, you know. So, you just gotta, you just gotta keep having persistency and and don't be afraid of uh, a, a failure. You know, it's a, it's a badge of honor in my book. That's awesome. Thanks, mate. Well, look, thanks for your contribution to Australian arts, culture, fashion. You're a, a visionary entrepreneur, and thanks for sharing your story with me today, mate. Oh, that's very kind of you, Lee. It's been uh, been a pleasure sitting down and having a chat with you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Good on you, mate. That's it for another episode. Lots of great takeouts for me from this conversation. The fashion world is a fickle one, but Simon has certainly navigated a successful path and taken a lot of other people with him. To find out more about Simon and his company, Ord, head to ordre.com, pronounced Ord. Apparently, hope I got it right. Thanks again to everyone who's been rating and reviewing the podcast. Remember, if you're on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, you can write a short review. It can literally be as short as a few words. And, you know, share on your social media. Until next time, live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production.